Hey, it's Leah. Before we start this episode, I just wanted to tell you about this other show called Stuff the British Stole. It's from CBC Podcast and Australia Radio National, and it's got all the story elements I love. It's got colonial theft. It's got museums denying that theft. It's got intrigue. It's got jokes by Australians. Join host Mark Fresnel as he picks one artifact and takes you on the wild, evocative, sometimes funny, and often tragic adventure of how it got to where it is today. Check it out on the same thing that you're listening to this on or on CBC Listen. This is a CBC Podcast. It's 1876, and the Lakota, Dakota, and Cheyenne have just triumphed over the American army in one of the most crushing defeats in U.S. history, the Battle of the Greasy Grass, or what the Americans would call the Battle of Little Bighorn. After the combat, the U.S. government realizes it has just underestimated the fighting power and the skill of indigenous resistance and begins to double its efforts. By the following year, the American Army's starvation tactics work and the U.S. government forces the now-famous Oglala warrior Crazy Horse to surrender. He does, so his people could survive, having watched many in his nation die after a brutal winter. But the Hunkpapa chief Sitting Bull decides to run. With 3,000 other Lakota, Sitting Bull leads them north, Knowing they would be pursued by the American military, there was no time to waste. Night and day, they continued to move. To stop meant surrender or death. Survival meant crossing an imperceptible boundary that the American military could not cross. As Sitting Bull and his people moved into Wood Mountain, Saskatchewan, the U.S. militia knew that this periphery it had created with the Canadians could not be breached. The Canada-U.S. border had its rules, and once the Lakota passed into Saskatchewan, they had to be left alone, for the time being. Sitting Bull had led his people over what the Lakota and other Indigenous people would call the medicine line. This is The Secret Life of Canada, a podcast about the country you know and the stories you don't. Hey, Fallon. Hey, Leah. Okay, hold on to your hat, because today... This is not a hat. These are headphones, Hold on Leah. to those headphones, <laughs> okay. because today we are going to talk about the thing that literally defines Canada. It's going to be about the border. That is what this episode oh, is about. Okay, okay, okay. Gotcha. <laughs> I mean, this will be no surprise to you, but borders are an entirely made up and man made thing. The real borders are bodies of water, deserts, and mountains, and even those people usually can cross. So, man made borders are arbitrary. I mean, what is it that John Lennon said in Imagine? He said, you I'm know, the walrus. That is incorrect. In <laughs> okay. Imagine, he said, Imagine there's no countries. It isn't hard to do. Yeah, he was right. At the end of the day, modern physical borders are a construct. And that's kind of what we're going to look at in this episode. We're going to look at, number one, how did the Canada-U.S. border come to be and what were the impacts of that? And number two, why did thousands of Canadians cross the border to fight for the U.S. in Vietnam, while at the same time thousands of Americans were crossing into Canada to get out of the fighting? 
Okay, so let's start at the beginning, 1794, which I think of because that's when the Jay Treaty was created, which was a border and trade negotiation contract between the U.S. and Britain and Indigenous people, which still really impacts us today. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so back in the day, Canada was a British colony, and the British and the Americans had been battling back and forth for over bits of what is now Canada, of course, and what would become the U.S. The Jay Treaty was about how each side would get to use the land and included a clause that allowed, and I mean, allowed is basically the wrong word here. Yeah, I think uh, that it restricted movement, but thought it was being great by stating Indigenous people from Canada could live and work freely in the United States. Although obviously before this, people were pretty much traveling back and forth across the border because there was no border. Right. But really interesting thing about this treaty is it excluded Indigenous people from paying duty on goods carried across the border. So like duty free? Yeah. I'm going to go. (laughs) Duty free. I have a whole list of stuff. Like there's some... um, I have this like concealer that I can't get here anymore, <laughs> so that's on the list. But here's Next, the twist. Here's oh, the, no, twist. the twist. The Canadian federal government doesn't recognize this part. Oh. So the Americans were like, yeah, you don't have to pay duty. But the Canadians were like, yes, you do. Right. That makes sense because mm-hmm. I've had to pay duty on mm-hmm. things. Mm-hmm. So Canada doesn't recognize it. But the U.S. says that indigenous people from Canada with 50 percent American Indian blood, their words, not mine, mm-hmm. may live and work in the United States without restriction. This has a huge impact on nations that live on the border, like the Mohawks of Akwesasne. Akwesasne borders Canada and the United States, and Ontario, Quebec, and New York State all claim parts of their territory. Yeah, for years the Akwesasne have had to deal with border services and their agencies as they actually had a station set up on their reserve. This meant that people on the reserve had to pay a toll to cross the border to just get groceries and stuff. Keep in mind this border could literally be for some, like walking across the street. In 1968, filmmaker and future Grand Chief of Akwesasne, Mike Mitchell, was arrested because he refused to pay the duty on some groceries and everyday items he brought across the border. A year later, the Akwesasne built a blockade through the reserve. Mike was a member of the NFB Indian film crew and shot a documentary about it called You Are on Indian Land. There's been many wrong stunts in the past. And today, we don't even trust the white man coming under this reservation. You cannot blame us for that. We don't want to be a Canadian citizen. We don't want to be American citizens. They told us a long time ago that we were North American Indians. And today, we feel this way, too. We have feel this way because we think that this reservation is ours. And it does not belong to the white man. That's the only part we still have left. The people of Akwesasne, which the white man calls the St. Regis Reservation, have lived on this land long before the two countries decided to draw a line between themselves. That line was not meant for Indians, and our right to cross it with our belongings paying no duty was confirmed in the Jay Treaty of 1794. The Canadian government never got around to making this treaty into law. And now they say we must pay duty on our groceries as we carry them to our houses if we happen to cross their line. Many of us have to pay a dollar to cross the bridge they built on our land. And they even build a custom house there too, without our consent. Well, yeah. (laughs) I'm like, all of that 
feels, although this documentary was in, made in the 60s, feels exactly like... Current. Yeah, it does not yeah. feel any different from now because, you know, as you know, mm-hmm. my family, my nation, Mohawk, the Six Nations, where mm-hmm. I come from, uh, our traditional territories were also in upstate New York. And so we've we lived on both sides of that line. Mm-hmm. And so... It still feels like a rallying cry to me hearing people talk like that. And I still feel like I hear people talk like that in my community all the time. Right. Yeah. And I I imagine like it was bad then, but now it's way more complicated now because our border, you know, at one time, like I read a lot of stuff about people in border towns you know, 50s, 60s, 70s, riding their bike across the border and just saying, like, I'm I'm just going to go get the cheaper milk in the neighboring mm-hmm. town or whatever. And, and the border people going, yeah, that's fine. You can't do that now, right? Like, you need... No. Uh, you need to have your eyeball scanned. Right. <laughs> you got to do, like, a full body audit. Yeah. What did you eat today? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like, yeah. your mother's, mother's mother's maiden name yeah. and, like, who she hung out with. So, Yeah. Yeah. So I can only assume that how we ended up with a border today is because a lot of white dudes drew a line on a map and were like, here here it is. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's pretty close. I think one drew a line and the rest watched, but I okay. like to think of them all helping each other draw the line. <laughs> like they're all holding one pen. One, one of the, yes, a novelty, a Someone novelty took a, pencil. Like one of those huge rulers. But yeah, it yeah. All, they're just yeah. like, there's the line. Yeah. And then they high-fived. Yeah, I think that's exactly how it happened. So in 1818, England and the United States decide to set the border that would run along the 49th parallel. This was a continued back and forth over Vancouver and Oregon, but eventually it got settled, and then the 49th parallel was locked in as the border. The 49th parallel is a circle of latitude that is 49 degrees north of the Earth's equator. That's right. And a circle of latitude is an invisible east-west circle connecting all locations around the Earth at a given coordinate. Coordinates are why people use compasses. I mean, we don't, but I'm sure other people use compasses. (laughs) Google Maps. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. These American and British guys who got in a room and drew a line across a map left it in charge to surveyors to go out and actually physically draw this line. Now, as you can imagine, as they went out onto the land, they soon realized that this line that the guys in the room drew goes right through mountains, goes right through water. Yeah, and as we just chatted about earlier, nations of people. Correct, and full-on nations of people. Although that unfortunately didn't stop them as it was the 1800s, and this was straight up the height of colonizing and Europeans and Americans taking stuff that wasn't theirs. Yeah, and drawing lines was very in fashion. (laughs) It was, actually. (laughs) So I feel like this history of the border really conflicts with the idea that we often hear, which is that Canada's border Mm -hmm. between it and the U.S. is the longest undefended border in the world. Oh, yeah, because as it came to be, it actually really disrupted and altered First Nation and Métis life. You know, supposedly that straight line they drew was more like a wavy, snaky-like boundary. It cuts through and around so many things. Our current border just doesn't go in a straight line. The surveyors used the best tools they could, but this was pre-GPS. Yes, and so they couldn't just ask 
Siri or, <laughs> hey, Alexa, draw me a border. <laughs> you know what? I'm sure there was a woman named Alexa that aspired to be a surveyor and possibly did all the work and never got credited. But no, this was long before anyone right, could ask right. Alexa to buy their groceries and build a straight border between two countries. So they use the technology of the time, Mm -hmm. compasses, to keep them on a straight path. And then what did they do from there? Just like leave a trail of breadcrumbs? (laughs) That always works out well, doesn't it? (laughs) That's right. That's exactly what they did. No, (laughs) they would dig up earth and leave mounds of dirt as the points of the border. And then those mounds got turned into markers, essentially like tiny little monuments that mark the border. And they are still around. How many do you think they are? Our border is 8,891 kilometers, and that includes the maritime. So try and guess how many markers there are. Mm, 20,000. <laughs> Close. It's 8,000. <laughs> I don't know. I thought maybe they were being like extra careful. I mean, yeah. <laughs> so these monuments that they made, can you walk along the border and see them? Could you do that? I mean, or? yeah, technically, a lot of them are in land that no one ever goes to. But that didn't stop the two sides from thinking they needed something more to delineate who was getting what. And that brings us to the stupidest solution ever, the no-touching zone. I've been in the no-touching zone. Oh, you have? Yeah, I got caught playing spin the bottle. <laughs> I was in grade seven. Yeah. And I got put in the no-touching zone. Yeah, and it does sound like a grade seven it does. rule at a dance like or something. A, yeah, seven minutes in heaven kind of situation. The no-touching zone is the physical divide between Canada and the United States. While we don't have a wall, we do have a thick line that has been cut into forests and goes over mountains, and it illustrates the divide between the two countries. The no-touching zone, or the slash, that's what they call it, is a 20-foot-wide slash cut through forests, and it's maintained by hand. I just pictured, like, slash from Guns N' Roses, like a 20-foot slash, like he maintains (laughs) the border (laughs) no rocks out (laughs) no when you see we're gonna link to the pictures but it's literally a big 20 foot divide that runs through our two countries and they maintain this every six years like since the 1800s they've been getting a crew to come in and mow down any trees that are trying to grow each year the united states and canada rely on a joint organization called the international boundary commission they gather workers from both sides and chop down a bunch of trees essentially and even though we have all this technology and they could just probably tape a laser a very strong laser to a tree and project a line for thousands of miles and not i don't think so but they could if they wanted to hopefully someone's working on that Probably not. But no, they still keep all of this up. And in my opinion, it's a catastrophe um, that they cut down all these trees. If you want to check it out, you can go into Google Maps, click on satellite, you know, find the border and you can see it cut. Yeah, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. Yeah, we will also link to the International Boundary Commission map. So you can check that out, too. Now, a lot of stuff happened environmentally because of the creation of this border. And to get a clearer picture, I called on Mitch and Greg from the Side Note podcast to help us out. Oh, I love those guys. Yeah. But you really just wanted a research break. Yeah, 100% I did. I had a non-negotiable hair appointment. So I asked them and they agreed to help me out because even though Side Note is about controversial subjects and pop culture, they also are the guys from ASAP Science and they research all this mind-blowing stuff. So they looked into investigating the impact on waterways between the U.S. and Canadian border. 
Hey, I'm Mitch. And I'm Greg. And we are here to talk to you about the 8,891-kilometer stretch between Canada and the U.S. Hopefully you all know that there is no continuous fence between us and our neighbors to the south, but the border still provides other types of obstacles to wildlife. Let us take you to the dams along the Columbia River. The Columbia River is 2,000 kilometers long and begins in the Rocky Mountains of British Columbia and then flows into Washington State, moving west to the Oregon border before emptying into the Pacific Ocean. Historically, the river would have massive floods. In fact, in 1948, the second largest city in Oregon was completely destroyed. And so, in 1961, Canada and the United States signed the Columbia River Treaty, which agreed to the building of four dams along the river. Today, we're focusing on how wildlife was impacted, so let's chat about salmon. The Columbia River Basin was once home to millions of Chinook salmon, and from the late 1880s to the early 1920s, as much as 11 million kilograms of Chinook were harvested each year. Some Chinook caught in June, known as June hogs, weighed as much as a golden retriever. Today, that number has dropped to five times less than its original harvest number, now at 2 million kilograms per year compared to the original 11 kilograms per year. Dams impact salmon in multiple ways. They can block passage of fish from the oceans to spawning sites. They impact water levels, which can have critical impacts on salmon food sources like plankton. And dams create reservoirs, which slow the flow of rivers and can cause temperatures to rise to levels that are lethal to salmon. But we try to mitigate these impacts by building fish ladders. Yes, Greg, go off on fish ladders. Yes, I'm trying to explain to you a fish ladder. Okay. A fish ladder allows adult salmon to swim back upriver to their spawning site. Fish ladders work as a detour route for migrating fish, which often involves a series of ascending pools that allow the salmon to jump from pool to pool up the river. Okay, this works for adult salmon, but not for the small fries and fingerlings, aka juvenile salmon. These juveniles used to rely on the flow of the river to carry them to the ocean, but now they have to use up energy to swim along the stagnant water, and when they reach the dam, they have no way around it except going through the dam turbines, which can be horribly fatal. That's so sad for the little salmon babies. And not only is salmon delicious to us humans, but it provides food for whales, my favorite animal, and bears, and eagles, and even helps to fertilize forests. It's difficult to isolate the impact of the treaty alone, as there are now over 60 dams throughout the Columbia River watershed. But it shows that while rivers may have no borders, borders can impact rivers. I just wanted to take a break to tell you about another CBC podcast I think you might like. It's called Death in Cryptoland. It's a true story about a crypto tycoon, his secret past, his sudden demise, and an online sleuth's obsession to unravel the truth behind his mysterious company. You can check it out on the same thing that you're listening to this on or on CBC Listen. Do you know anything about Canada? And the Vietnam War. Oh, no. I know exactly what I know about every other historical incident. At least we're not the Americans. Holy f***. I feel like I used to know a lot more about this, but now I know nothing about it. You asked me this one in this moment. Uh, I know that there were people who enlisted from Canada to go to Vietnam. Often the narratives we hear are about Americans being conscripted, and we know that there's a lot of Americans who moved to Canada to be draft dodgers, some of whom have never been able to go back to the States freely. But the concept that Canadians here 
willingly went to the war uh, and fought uh, is fascinating to me and something I'd like to I'd like to know more about. Oh my god, would you like to host our podcast? <laughs> Before we talk about the Canadians who went to fight in the war, I think we need to explain to people, and I'm going to explain to you why the war even happened, because it's super long and complicated and people often don't have the context. So I'm going to give you... Get ready for the abridged three-minute version of the Vietnam War. Three minutes. Uh-huh. Okay, well, then I'm going to time you. Okay. And if you go past the three-minute mark, then you are buying me a steak. What? A steak? If I go past yes. three minutes, I will buy you a coffee. Not a fancy coffee either. Uh, just like a regular coffee is fine. A fancy coffee and a Jamaican beef patty. Spicy or regular? Uh, depends on where the coffee comes from, really. But I'll go regular to play it safe. Oh, wow. Yeah, spi- spicy patty and a coffee are like... <laughs> I mean, if that's your choice. <laughs> yeah, anyway, okay. Yeah, I'm going to go regular on this okay, one. Okay, deal. And I'm going to start the timer. Okay. So, this war began because of colonialism. Okay, it's the 1880s, and France attacks Indochina, which consisted of the countries Laos, Cambodia, and Vietnam. The French move in, live it up on plantations, and establish a ruling class. The French considered it bringing civilization to the Vietnamese, and the Vietnamese were like, no, we already have that, and we don't want your croissants. So the Vietnamese who fought back were brutally punished, and many were thrown out of the country. One of those Vietnamese is a dude by the name of Win Tat Tan. 30 seconds. He eventually goes to Russia, really digs communism, and tries to figure out how to get the French out of his country. Win Tat Tan eventually changes his name to Ho Chi Minh. Ho Chi Minh. Yes, remember his name. Okay. Got it. Then it's the 30s and 40s. World War II happens. France's new pro Nazi government is put in charge of Vietnam, and Ho Chi Minh watches from Russia as the Japanese arrive, and he feels like it's another invader. So he moves back to Vietnam and starts the Viet Minh. It's a fighting force to take on first the Japanese and then the French. When the U.S. drops an atomic bomb over the Japanese cities of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, the Vietnamese seize this opportunity to take back their homeland from the Japanese. They do, but Ho Chi Minh still needs to get the French out, and what he wanted was the U.S. to help. But the U.S. is not into communism, so they say, no, we will let you guys, you, France, and Vietnam work it out. One thirty. Then things get out of hand. The Viet Minh try to gain control over Vietnam and they start killing other Vietnamese people. The French are like, what? They send in an army to retake the country. But then a bloody eight-year civil war begins between France and the Viet Minh. The country is then divided by a communist north and a capitalist south. The Viet Minh kick France's butt. So you think that would be the end of it, but no. When the French leave, chaos ensues. The Vietnamese people are forced to pick sides and during a 300-day period of free movement, Millions of people flee, fearing persecution by the communists. <laughs> by the time the U.S., <laughs> by this time, the U.S. is super worried because the Viet Minh beat the French and they now feel like this whole situation is a threat to democracy and they're all about democracy. They subscribe to this domino theory. If one country falls to communism, then others will too. So the USA decides to get in everybody's business and they move in to fight the communist North Vietnam. They come up against a new and improved Vietnamese army called the National Liberation Front. 20 years pass. 
This war happens and thousands of people die, all because the U.S. was scared of a change in the balance of power throughout Southeast Asia. It was brutal and seemingly a pointless war. More than three million people were killed and more than half of them were Vietnamese civilians. And who won? The Vietnamese because they knew their land. They used guerrilla tactics and had intricate and amazing tunnels that took the Americans by surprise. In 1973, the United States withdrew and two years later, the Vietnamese communists occupied South Vietnam and proclaimed the United People's Republic of Vietnam. The effects of the war would linger long after after that, you know, when the Vietnamese were rebuilding and the troops were coming home, the states had years of protest, arrests, and people objecting to a war many Americans never understood. Time! So you're over, yeah, you're like three and a half minutes, but... Okay, um, well, that's still... It that's was, still it was 20 me. years of history. You could be like a, a, a rapper. <laughs> I don't think so. I think like a, a cattle, like one of those like mm-hmm. auctioneers, oh, like auctioneer guys, yeah. one, 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 twenty, one, twenty, one, 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 Alberta, Alberta, yeah, it's in your blood. It traumatized me, but it also left me with things that I have can't do anything with. Yeah, Talents, useless skills, useless skills. Yeah, okay. So your auctioneer style <laughs> monologue there yes. illustrates to me that war is pointless, mm-hmm. essentially. Okay, so can we talk a bit about the Canadian involvement now? Because mm-hmm. yeah, I thought our involvement was just letting draft dodgers come over the border and I mean, live their lives here. Yes, sort of. During the war, young American men faced the possibility of being involuntarily drafted into military service. It was really scary. But there were many ways to avoid it with certain connections. You know, there was a saying like, if you got the dough, you don't have to go. Right. Surprise. Money gets you out of things. For some that had no choice in going to war, they decided to flee to Canada. It's so interesting because we had all of these draft dodgers and deserters streaming over the border trying to do everything possible to get out of going to this war. And on the opposite end, we have Canadians who had no duty to serve going to the United States to volunteer to go to war. So why would they do this? I mean, yeah, a lot of different reasons. I mean, this war was this constant pervasive thing you heard and read about all the time. It's the mid-50s to the mid-1970s. So for some kids, that's like your entire childhood, all your teenage years. It's your whole life. And through movies, it was very glamorized. I mean, even in Canada. Right. So some of the people who enlisted did so because they were dual citizens. But for ones who were not, the reasons ranged from feeling a duty to help Americans, you know, our closest allies, to wanting adventure or or thinking it would be an adventure, you know. Right. Even though Canada had passed a law that made it illegal to sign up with the U.S. Armed Forces, uh, people did it anyway. Honestly, from reading these accounts, it seemed like a lot of them were very just young and naive and they just didn't quite understand what they were getting themselves into. 30,000 Canadians enlisted, and when they did, they were treated for a moment like Americans. To hear more about who these soldiers were and what happened, I spoke to Tracy Ariel, author of I Volunteered, Canadian Vietnam Vets Remember. 
most of the people who went to Vietnam from Canada were in between 17 and 20. Some of them were younger because they lied, and some of them were slightly older. But no, none that I spoke to were, was older than 20, so it was all in the 17 to 20 range. Uh, you couldn't be a police officer at that time unless you were 21. There were no jobs, and the Canadian military was not hiring. So if you wanted to go into security at all, this was a really easy way to go. Because they, they wanted a lot of people to go to Vietnam, the recruiters were in Canada, and it was an easy job for people who didn't have a job. Reading Lao, it looks naive, but if you grew up even like I did in the 70s, you know that a lot of the information that people take for granted having now, they didn't have then. <laughs> so a lot of what happened, and even in Vietnam, um, even the American public was completely naive about it until the late 60s uh, when people like Walter Cronkite went and actually showed them what was going on on the ground. So I think that uh, they were mostly going by World War stories. Many of the Vietnam veterans had people who were in previous wars, and they idolized their, their, it was often their fathers, sometimes it was the grandfather, sometimes it was some, you know, a beloved uncle or something. And so they really thought that fighting in a war was honorable, and it it was important. And if you read the media coverage, particularly in the early 60s, there was no question that Canadians and Americans were very pro uh, trying to make sure that Vietnam could be freed from the North Vietnamese. It was a, they, they were anti-communist. They really wanted, and, and they were pro-Catholic. Um, one thing that a lot of people don't realize that at that time, um, there were uh, rows of people walking from North Vietnam to South Vietnam because they had to get away from, uh, as Catholics, they would be killed. So uh, a lot of people got the information from that as well. They wanted it, they wanted to actually save people, um, in, in favor right. of democracy, you know? So, yeah. yeah, of course it's naive, but aren't it, all people who try to do something important yes. tend to be a little idealistic. Well, and it's it's very similar then to a lot of the Amer you know, American soldiers that went and fought early on before people realized what was going on. You really have to appreciate that some people believe that it's important to fight for what you believe, you know? It, it, it's hard to look at Vietnam because Vietnam is always seen as a difficult war, as an um, unjust war. All wars are unjust in some ways and people still fight them and it's because they're trying to fight for something bigger. And I think that it's, Vietnam is a tough issue to cover because so many people think of it as something that they can't imagine anyone participating in. But at the beginning of the war, it looked like any other war because we hadn't lost yet. Um, but also, a lot of people don't know about this war that Canada actually participated. Um, we sent Canadian soldiers there under the Canadian um, military as well because it was our first peacekeeping mission. It was actually our first two peacekeeping missions. And at that time, they were still t working out what a peacekeeping mission was. And so the way that the United Nations worked it is that each party to the conflict got to choose somebody who would be on their side. So the Americans chose Canada. And so there were actually several Canadians who died there who were serving with the Canadian military as well. Uh -huh. So what about the ones who survived? What happened to those Canadians when they got back? Well, when they arrived back, they received none of the same benefits as their fellow American soldiers. So a group of vets formed the Canadian Vietnam Veterans Association. This group came together for a sense of community that they really weren't receiving from other veterans associations. Most people, frankly, didn't know or understand their experience or really 
they just didn't, you know, it wasn't really looked fondly upon that they went to fight in this war. The association lobbied the American government hard to get help for the vets who had been wounded in the war. And finally, in 1988, the Reagan administration passed a bill that authorized Canadian Vietnam vets would receive medical treatment in Canada. God, that's so interesting that they they had to fight so hard for recognition because I feel like we collectively know more about the Americans who came here to live than the mm-hmm. Canadians who went over to Vietnam to fight. Yeah, and it's a it's a really interesting piece of history that gets left out of the conversation a lot when it comes to the war in Vietnam. I think some of it is connected to the shame a lot of them felt when they came mm-hmm. back. The after effects of that war on both sides were seen, it was seen as a dirty, dirty war, right. um, a meaningless, pointless war. And um, I mean, most of the right about this war happens through an American lens. So I guess that's just why we, we've we never heard of these Canadians who went to fight voluntarily. Yeah, that makes sense. So complicated. So complicated. Yeah, Ugh. so while thousands of Canadians were crossing the border to fight in the war, thousands of American kids are watching all of their friends leave They go to war and then they never come back. So many decide, you know what, I'm taking off and they become known as draft dodgers. According to Statistics Canada, between 1966 and 75, almost 240,000 Americans moved to Canada. That was twice the number as in the previous decade. So, so many were crossing the border illegally that by 1969, the Canadian government passed a law allowing U.S. immigration. It basically said draft dodgers could come into Canada regardless of their military status. It was controversial, and it did not extend to deserters. Right, because a draft dodger was a person who was trying to get out of being signed up to fight, but a deserter was a person who had already been signed up, been through basic training, and possibly served in the war and left. In 1974, 28,000 Americans crossed the border. And although the U.S. granted amnesty to people who evaded the draft by 1977, many stayed in Canada. It really changed things here because many people were highly skilled. They were, you know, middle class who went into politics and broadcasting. As with most situations, those with the most agency managed to get over the border. Yeah, I mean, there were a lot of Canadians also who helped them get over the border. Different youth-led university organizations cropped up. They would help people not only get across, but provide them for what they needed with when they got here. But I do think after looking into this history, the deciding factor of if you got to evade the draft and move was really about class and money. If you were poor and had no contacts, it would be really hard for you to pick up and move to Canada. In 1968, Mark Satin, a draft dodger himself, published The Manual for Draft Age Immigrants to Canada. The book instructed Americans on how to navigate rent, food, and the Canadian judicial system. This was a lifeline for draft dodgers and was used and shared widely at the time. The manual had a reprint in 2017 by Canadian publisher House of Anansi Press, marking 50 years since its release. I was lucky enough to get to speak to Mark Satin. He is now 73, lives in California, and writing the manual was just one moment in a long and storied life of activism. Often when we hear these stories of the 60s, it's really romanticized. So I wanted him to tell me, what was it really like being a 20-year-old during one of the most tumultuous times in recent history? And what the feeling of that time was like? Hi, I'm Mark, and I wrote the Manual for Draft Age Immigrants to Canada. 
Um, I'm not sure why they want to put me on the air, but whatever they ask, I'll answer. The general feeling at that time was chaos. It was fear. It was anger. It was frustration. And it was unbelievable confusion as to what was happening. The adults didn't seem to have answers. And our parents hated us. They couldn't understand why we disliked what the United States was doing, not just in Vietnam, but in the civil rights movement, for instance, or in what we could call sexual affairs. The parents couldn't get a grip. My father, for example, fought in World War II. He could not understand why he was raising a son who seemed to be so gentle. This came to a head once I went to college and immediately dropped out to join the civil rights movement in Mississippi. After that, my parents froze my bank account so I could only attend one more year's worth of school. We stopped speaking as soon as I told them that I was going to Canada. I barely spoke to my parents for 40 years. My experience was not dissimilar from that of many other people in the United States of my age. So he explained that this culture clash between young and old bled into every facet of life. And then the war begins. And then a draft where if you are a certain age and considered to be healthy, you had to go. It was illegal if you didn't. In years prior, generations went to war for the most part willingly. But Mark explained why that didn't happen for many of his generation. Vietnam was utterly confusing to us. We just didn't get it. It was not a threat to anyone. It was a pathetically poor country. Its natural enemies were were China and the Soviet Union. Four million people were killed. Four million people. 58,000 Americans, we forget, in North America. And over 100 Canadians, by the way. It seemed evil. Not politically evil so much as culturally evil, morally evil. So Mark luckily makes it over the border, and then he starts to counsel other Americans who made it across. He gets hired by an anti-draft program here in Canada, and even for them, he's declared a bit of a rebel. It's here and that time that he decides to write a manual. I wrote the manual because I, I couldn't think of anything more important in the world to do than to let people know that if they didn't want to fight in Vietnam, They had an alternative besides going to jail and besides hiding out in universities when they didn't want to be there. And I furthermore felt that we had an obligation to make it clear to Americans who did not want to go off and kill people in Vietnam that they didn't have to go underground and live crazy lives, but that they could go to a country that was more just, namely Canada, and live lives that were productive and that they could respect themselves for. I felt almost a religious calling to do this. So after counseling guys 10 hours a day, after after about a month and a half of this, I would spend until midnight typing out what I'd learned. And I have to say that Canadians here, too, were unbelievably helpful. I mean, without Canadians, the manual could not exist. I have not told you this, but I am blind now. I walk around with dark glasses and a cane. And the reason I'm blind is that I developed diabetes. And the reason I developed diabetes is according to my doctor, 
her theory anyway, is that from the years of, from my age of 18 to the age of 36, I was living on what I call, and she calls, the activist diet. You know what the activist diet is? The activist diet is when you care so much about saving the world that you don't care enough about nurturing yourself properly. So my lesson to activists is this. Don't neglect getting your degree. Don't neglect getting all the credibility you can. You want to work for humanity. Don't try to do it on your own. The Secret Life of Canada is recorded in Toronto on the traditional lands of the Haudenosaunee, Wendat, and most recently, the Mississaugas of the Credit. It's written and hosted by me, Leah Simone Bowen. And me, Phelan Johnson. And produced by Katie Jensen. Our script editor is Yvette Nolan. Research assistance is provided by John Weir, the folks from CBC Archives, and the CBC Image Research Library. Special thanks goes out to our CBC Podcasts intern, Kelsey Cueva. Our digital producer is Fabiola Carletti. The senior producer of CBC Podcasts is Tanya Springer. And the executive producer is RF Norani. Come hang out with us on our Facebook group. You can chat with us about this episode or check out other cool history-related posts and tell us what you think. We're also on Instagram and Twitter at Secret Life of CAD. If there's a story you want to hear in an episode or a piece of history you want to tell us about, email us at secretlifeofcanada at cbc.ca. If you liked what you heard, or even if you didn't, please review us on iTunes. It really helps other people find us. Thanks for exploring Canada's hidden history with us. And remember, pass it on. If you like this show, check out Personal Best, a reckless, do-it-yourself approach to self-improvement. Each episode, they help someone tackle a weird, eccentric, or pretty everyday hang-up that you would be too embarrassed to tell an actual life coach about. Subscribe to Personal Best wherever you get your podcasts. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.